Democratic Senate majority after the 2022 midterms. Hello everybody, I'm David Schuster and thanks for joining us on the conversation. Confidence is growing in many Democratic quarters about the way some Senate races are shaping up. And again, there seems to be every indication now that Democrats feel they've got a really strong chance of not only keeping their majority in the US Senate, but actually adding to it. Is that realistic? Here to talk about this is Bree Maxwell. She's a Democratic strategist, principal and CEO of Indigo Consulting. Bree, great to have you on the program. Are Democrats being realistic when they think about maintaining control of the Senate? Absolutely, I don't see why we would not be realistic when it comes to keeping control of the Senate. And you know, some of the things that have come out as of lately has been able to show the strength that the Democratic Party is having. And the fact that this current Senate is able to work across the aisle to make sure that we are getting things done. I know we have had a hard time with Senator Manchin and also Cinema, but it also shows you not only does the Democratic Party want to make sure that we are taking care of the American public, we want to make sure that we are also working across the aisle. So no bill that the senators have been able to put out has gone without any approval from senators, Republican senators as well. Out of the 35 Senate races, I think only 10 or so are competitive. Some of those include Georgia, where Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, is leading. Herschel Walker, the Republican challenger. Pennsylvania, currently held by a Republican. You've got John Fetterman, the Democratic Lieutenant Governor, who's leading Oz, the Republican candidate. It feels like a lot of races seem to be breaking the Democrats' way. Yes, and I think this is the great thing because Georgia realizes that, look, Raphael Warnock is a great guy and he's been able to do great things for Georgia since he has been able to be in elected office. And we saw that in 2020 when people galvanized behind them. We, I even went to Georgia and helped work on that election. And the people were excited and I think once Warnock is able to win again in November, you'll be able to see why it was very important to make sure that he wins again. And even with Fetterman, Fetterman brings a different type of energy and spirit to elected office. And I think that's something that people are looking forward to across the country, young and old alike. People are looking for politicians who are not just political, but people who are down to earth. And not only is Fetterman down to earth, he's also smart and he's intelligent. And he's able to get the job done. You spent a lot of time in South Carolina politics. You're something of an expert, I suppose, on, on Southern politics. Um, a lot of people don't quite understand in the Georgia Senate race, the sort of the Herschel Walker appeal that unless you're from Georgia, unless you remember just how valuable, how crucial football is down there, that he was a Heisman Trophy winner and a national champion winner. People don't understand, well, how does that translate into political success? What is it that keeps Herschel Walker, I suppose, within striking distance in the Senate race? Well, one thing in the South we love is we love our guns and we love our football. Mm-hmm. And be it that Herschel Walker is from Georgia, Georgia is a big football state. And for people who aren't political, those are minor things that they look at. They look at how you translate to certain communities. And for communities that are not political, they look at sports as a as a talking point. That's like locker room talk. If I can go into the boiler room or locker room or even a barbershop with you and have football talk, then you have captivated my attention. And because of that, I'm going to support you. So it's little things like that 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 politicians have been able to use in order to bring people to the table. So that Herschel Walker effect, yes, he's a black man. He is a black guy with a rise in politics, and he's also an ex-football star. So because of stuff like that, people look at him and people galvanize to that. Unfortunately, he's not a great politician, and I do not see him being a great politician ever. 
But it's those minor things such as the football history that people are able to galvanize towards. What do you make, what are you seeing right now in terms of young black voters, a very crucial dynamic in literally every sort of statewide Senate race across the nation? How are young black voters trending these days? What are the issues that matter to them? You know, it really depends on which young black voters you're speaking to. So, talking to some young black voters in South Carolina, some of them are looking for something different. They're looking for someone who speaks to their issues, they're looking for people who look like them and who can translate to the things that that they are able to do and things that they look forward to. So for some instances, young black voters are looking for people who can bring jobs, who can bring about health care, who can help bring down the cost of education, student loan reform, who will also help get rid of student loans. So these are some of the things that young black voters are looking for. And then even in some areas, you have young black voters who who want to galvanize behind the candidates for school choice. They are looking for the candidates who will not have so many taxes on small businesses. And they are also looking for the candidates who are very conservative minded and who are actually trying to get rid of abortion. So it really depends on what young black voters you're talking to and what area of the country that they in. But I believe in order to tackle and in order to bring young black voters and get young black voter contact, you have to really be speaking to their issues. And it really depends on what part of the country that you are in. You mentioned the young black Republicans, which seems to be a phenomenon that has a lot of Democratic pollsters very worried because of that focus on economic issues and school choice. What is it that Democrats can do to keep their margins among young black voters and sort of avoid many of them bleeding over and becoming Republicans? Well, look, what Democrats are gonna have to do is they're gonna have to put their money where their mouth is. Because one reason why young black voters are not galvanizing with some Democrats is the fact that Some Democrats have made promises that they have not been able to keep. And because of that, Republicans have been able to use that as a talking point. I remember in 2020, when we did some polling, some young black people said the reason why they decided to move over to the Republican Party was three things. One, Republicans made sure that there were money going towards HBCUs. So their take was, if you can make sure that my children can go to a black HBCU, a black college, then listen, I'm going to galvanize behind you as a politician. Two was getting black men out of jail. We also know that this has been a crazy phenomenon for years about black men being in jail. And we also saw with the Donald Trump administration that they didn't release a few black men out of jail. And three jobs, they just wanna make sure that they're able to put food on their table, keep the lights on in their homes and make sure that they're able to take care of their families. So if you're able to do those three things for certain pockets of our black population, then yes, they will support you and they will vote for you. Is there also something I suppose about, I mean, the the black community being more sort of splintered and a certain element perhaps not wanting or somehow resenting the idea that they are somehow victims? Absolutely. So there are some young, from doing upon my own independent research, there are some young black voters like, listen, I'm not a victim and I refuse to be a victim. And at this point, it's time for us to move on from that victim mentality. And what they see the Republican Party brings is about accountability and also transparency. And at this point, they are ready for different communities and different pockets and also politicians to speak to the things that they're looking forward to. And some of the things that they are looking forward to is economics, economic empowerment, ways to make sure that black wealth can translate for generations to come. We have a lot of progressives, of course, who watch the Young Turks and follow us here. Um, And a lot of them, I think, are puzzled about why progressives are not doing better in the South. What are some of the progressive issues that seem to resonate and some of the issues that perhaps 
don't resonate or might turn off voters in the South? Well, I think one thing that is not resonating and as it should resonate is student loan reform. How right now a lot of young people would like for student loans to be erased. And you have a lot of people in the South, basically across the country that feels like as if, listen, you that was a choice you made to receive those student loans. And it was a loan and loans you have to pay back. So that's one thing that is not translating across all demographics and all sectors. Another is the Green New Deal. We saw when AOC was running for office and when she was elected to office, how people galvanized behind the Green New Deal. So those are some things that progressives are looking forward to. And some such things as how we are paying for healthcare, you know, things of that nature. And it's just at this point, you know, we there is a fight between moderates and progressives. It's not as big a fight as the media portrays it to be, but it is some type of issue with, with the moderates and the progressives on just basically coming to an equal medium and trying to figure out how we can make sure that we can take care of the American people. You mentioned at the top uh, the impact perhaps of the Senate and Congress having this sort of agreement on health care and, and also climate change proposals. Um, how much of an impact do you see that having on the midterms? And is it as big as a lot of people in Washington seem to be thinking? Yes, I think so. And with some of the recent bills that Biden has been able to put forth and that the Senate has been voting on as of lately, it will help going towards the midterms, especially with gas going down. Um, inflation actually improving and but the Biden administration has proven to us like, look, we're definitely not heading towards a recession. What we are headed towards is economic recovery. So if these are some of the talking points that Democrats can actually push and actually demonstrate and show to people, the Democrats will be fine going towards the midterms. And yet we have, and you, as you point out, I mean, 3.5% unemployment rate, the lowest in 50 years. And yet Democrats seem to be caught over perceptions of inflation, that prices are out of control? I think people live in the now. So because the fact that people live in the now, they're not understanding or they're not seeing that things are gonna get better down the road. Yes, gas is still a little bit high right now, but guess what? Gas has went down within the last seven weeks. Gas prices have went down. Inflation is still up there, yes, but guess what? It is also going down. And it's not like the Biden administration has been sitting there filling at their thumbs like mm, the world is, at a collapse right now, I'm not sure what to do. But what the Biden administration has been able to do is work on getting us towards economic recovery. So we're well on our way. And this is just a talking point that Democrats need to use going towards the midterms. And Bree, real quickly, is it good or bad for the Democratic Party to have Joe Biden on the ticket in 2024? Absolutely, I do not believe in ageism. And if our president decides that he wants to run in 2024, then it is our responsibility to make sure that we are supporting him and putting forth our issues towards him. It does not look good as a party to not support the president and what he plans to do. Bree Maxwell, Democratic strategist, president and CEO of Indigo Consulting. Bree, great to have you on the conversation. Thank Thanks you. for doing this, we appreciate it. Thank you, have a good one. You too. Lessons from Kansas, welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster, the US political world is still dissecting what happened in Kansas when 60% of the voters there rejected a constitutional amendment that would have gotten rid of abortion rights. And Kansas is as red a Republican state as there is in the United States. Here to talk about all of this is Amy Littlefield. She is the abortion access correspondent for the nation. She has also spent some time in Kansas. Amy, what happened there? How did the Democrats, how did pro-rights how did abortion rights activists pull it off? 
Yeah, I mean, it's really astounding. And this was really the first test of mobilization for the abortion rights movement after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. I won't say it's it's the first test of how the public feels about abortion, right? Because I think supporters of abortion rights have known for a long time that public opinion is on their side, that a majority of people want Roe v. Wade to be in place. Well, now it's gone and a majority of the population is angry about that decision by the Supreme Court. And so I think what this was was a resounding denunciation of the overreach of a Republican Party that's really fused with the anti-abortion movement, certainly in Kansas and in other states across the country. And a resounding rejection of what the Supreme Court just did. I think it sends an incredibly strong message about the strength of public opinion on this issue and the potential for Democrats to really embrace it much more wholeheartedly than they have. And I think it's a real testament to the grassroots organizing and the enormous amount of outreach that went on. You know, I spoke to folks in Kansas who had never been involved in political organizing in their lives before, who were knocking doors in the blazing heat, who were phone banking, who were you know getting out the vote. And there was this huge grassroots mobilization underway in the state that I think has really triumphed. And it also sounds like there was also a massive um, uh, registration to vote after the Roe decision in Kansas. Oh my gosh, yeah, the day that Roe was overturned, I think it was a thousand percent that voter registration surged. I mean, so it's clear that people who were complacently pro-choice before maybe didn't feel moved by the sort of incremental chipping away, chipping away of abortion rights that we've seen really for decades, but especially since 2010 in, in red states across the country. You know, people who were sort of, you know, watching that happen and and weren't sort of moved to political participation are now sort of they're they're outraged. I talked to one woman who said, "I've never put a yard sign in my in my yard before," and she had a vote no, which is the abortion rights position sign out in her lawn in the suburban neighborhood in Wichita, Kansas, and she was nervous about what the neighbors would think because a lot of them were conservative. But she said when Roe v. Wade was overturned, she cried. She was out there protesting with her mom who's in her 70s. And I think there just are a lot of people like her across the political spectrum who are shocked and outraged by the fall of the nationwide right to legal abortion. And they sent a strong message at the polls. And a lot of people are also looking at the message in terms of how it may reverberate in other states. Are there lessons from Kansas that are particular to Kansas, unique to Kansas, or are there things that happen there in the run up to this uh, this referendum that can be applied in other states? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the number one lesson, right? And this is more a lesson for the mainstream of the Democratic Party is that abortion is a winning issue, okay? Abortion is more popular than than the president right now. I mean, let's be clear, um, legal abortion is extremely popular. And we saw how a campaign that really ran on how this is a constitutional freedom, you know, was able to be successful. I think we also, this is also a lesson about the success of grassroots politics, of neighborhood talking to neighbors, you know, there are a lot of people who are involved in this effort who weren't necessarily officially part of the campaign. I mean, I talked to a woman who 
walks up and down the street corner near where she lives um, in her neighborhood in Wichita with a sign, you know, yelling at cars, trust women, Jesus did, right? Kathy Griffin was her name. And she, you know, this I mean, she's not necessarily affiliated with any campaign, but she had a rapport going with the people in her neighborhood. They knew her, they would bring her donuts, you know, and she was having conversations on the street where I watched an older woman walk by and say, I'm with you 100%, you know, so those sort of kitchen table or, or street corner conversations. I think we're going on across the state, and and they're effective. Um, so you know, I think it sends a major a major message about the the potential success of abortion. You know, we've seen how abortion has been used as a wedge issue by the other side, right? It's certainly been used by the right wing to you know rile up enough of the base that they can cement themselves in power in state legislatures and gerrymander themselves into control for for years to come, and then pass you know deeply unpopular popular economic policies, right? I mean, this has been the sort of the playbook for conservative Republicans at the local level. I mean, I think the other thing that I was thinking about a lot when I was in Kansas, I went to Wichita in part because in 1991, that was the site of the Summer of Mercy, which was an enormous anti-abortion blockade of clinics and you know stadium-sized gatherings that happened where the the militant wing of the anti-abortion movement was sort of descended on Wichita, and that was a radicalizing experience for a lot of people in that city who ended up channeling their sort of newfound politicization and radicalization into running for local office and taking over you know local Republican county positions and moving into the state legislature and that really brought the whole Republican Party to the right for years to come and so I think there's an open question of whether abortion and the and the surge in momentum and political organizing around um, gaining back access to abortion and, and expanding it in states like Kansas, I think there's a question of whether that could be an opening to to um, to a new political direction in Kansas and across the country. And are pro-choice Americans at an inherent disadvantage because so much of that Republican surge on the right has been organized by churches and has 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 relied upon churches to sort of be a natural organizing factor for them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's really, you know, the the main backer of, you know, the main financial backer of of the anti-abortion amendment in Kansas was Catholic dioceses um, and churches that can't typically donate to candidates or risk losing their tax exempt status. You know, were fully involved in this election and had signs out front. You know, I saw a lot of signs in front of churches and and um, Catholic institutions in particular, um, but that. That being said, there were also churches that had vote no signs and you know had signs out giving powerful you know spiritual defenses of abortion rights. And so I think, and also I talked to quite a few people who had heard sermons that were denouncing abortion rights just that morning. I was out canvassing with with the abortion rights canvassers on the vote no campaign on a Sunday afternoon, and so we talked to people who'd heard about it in church. 
that morning. You know, one woman said, "Oh yeah, I've heard about this amendment from my church. I go to an evangelical church. I'm voting yes because you know my 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 pastor is anti-abortion, and that's what I am too." And then we talked to another woman who was undecided. She said, "Yeah, I've been. I I feel like I want to vote no. I feel like I I doesn't feel right to me that the government would you know be controlling that decision for people." And she'd been hearing another message from her pastor, and so she was sort of split. And then we also talked to a Catholic, you know, lifelong Catholic who was just sort of ignoring the message that was coming out in her church bulletin and was determined to make a full throated of abortion rights and talked to us for, you know, 10 minutes standing out on the, the pavement in the hot sun. So, I mean, people who are in the pews don't necessarily agree with the message that's coming from the pulpit all the time. We know that's certainly the case with Catholics, that people do not necessarily agree with their church's leadership yeah, when it comes to issues suppose, like abortion. But sometimes I suppose they're reluctant to sort of speak out and whether it's they don't want to speak out against their pastor, they don't want to speak out against their husband, their father. And so that gets to the dynamic of, well, how much of this is, do you think, whether it's Kansas or any other state, that there's a significant number of women in particular who may tell pollsters or their friends one thing, but who are gonna pull the lever and say, no, I'm supporting abortion rights. Right, I mean, it was really striking to me. There are a lot of houses that the list that, that the canvassers were going off of was likely no voters, likely abortion rights sympathizers. And there were a lot of doors where a man answered and they would ask for the woman <laughs> who lives there. Um, and I did, I mean, I talked to quite a few Republican women who were um, quiet about it, but were voting no. And so meaning voting, and it's very confusing, right? Voting no is the abortion rights position. Voting no was defeating this anti-abortion amendment that was on the ballot. Um, so yes, I mean, I think, and I think that's the key here, right? I think in part you're seeing people across the political spectrum who were quietly pro-choice before, who are now adamantly, angrily, <laughs> actively pro-choice. And I think the political potential um, there is something that we're only beginning to see. And and it's it's really astonishing. And how much of that anger do you think is driven by? I mean, I think Charlie Sykes, the Republican strategist who was pro-life, said that the Republican Party is overreaching. That if they were just simply saying, okay, well, we're gonna outlaw abortion in the second and third trimester, keep it legal in the first trimester, allow exceptions for rape and incest. If those are a more moderate position, Republicans might do better, but the Republicans are being seen as so extreme on this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the reality is that we've seen a history in this country of an incremental approach to chipping away at abortion rights. And I think to some degree that did sort of become routine. The crisis became routine. You know, there's only so many times that you can say, oh, this law is really an existential threat to access in the state, you know, before people sort of get used to hearing that. You know, even though what that means in practice is that a certain number of people, especially low-income people, especially women of color, are being denied access, right? It's a it's a life-threatening change. To and a life-altering change to to people who are in that situation. I mean, so I think that maybe this was the tipping point, you know, where where the overturn of Roe v. Wade um, sort of woke up the the sleeping giant of the of the pro-choice majority. I mean, but I think 
for for the anti-abortion movement, it was never the goal to have a moderate abortion regulation in place. The goal has always been banning abortion entirely. The goal has always been constitutional protections for the embryo, right? That's that's always been the long game. The question has just been how they got there. And so I think if the long game is deeply unpopular, <laughs> you know, and and that's what we're seeing now is sort of an understanding that that's where they were headed all along, I think. Amy Littlefield, she's the abortion access correspondent for The Nation. She spent a lot of time in Kansas, has written a lot about this trend and where things may be going. Amy, thanks so much for joining us on the conversation, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You got it, and that'll do it for this edition of our show. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Bart Kyle, John Skip Volaco, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster, thanks for watching.